Welcome to this week's Think Jewish. And today's class is dedicated in memory of Dina Rachel, a blessed memory. Is there anyone else who wants to mention um, someone for long life that needs uh, a Rafua Shalema? Please say the person's name and their mother's name now. Okay. 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 Today's uh, topic is why war? That is the question that we're going to discuss today. And obviously, I'm not even discussing if war. That seems to be a definite, but it's a why war. Why is war definite? Because I'm referring to this week's Torah portion that we just read yesterday. And the portion has a huge amount of laws about war. It begins with one type of war, then there's a different type of war, and then it closes with the war, which is very difficult to understand, which is the war of annihilation of the entire remembrance of Amalek. That's the only war where everything is annihilated. So the Torah portion obviously tells us that there is war, and it just tells us how to behave in times of war. The question I'm asking is, why war? That's the question. Obviously, this question became a lot bigger for our generation, especially post-60s with the big posters of Make Love, Not War. Their entire understanding of war changed, as if there's never a purpose for war. And um, right now, I happen to be reading a biography of President Andrew Jackson. In his days, this shiur wouldn't be necessary. Why war? I mean, they were fighting for something. They had something they believed in, they were fighting for it. They were willing to give their life for it, and they were willing to take a life for it. But in today's generation, and then many sociologists talk about that our generation just doesn't have a cause. And when you don't have a cause, you don't have something you're willing to die for. When you don't have something you're willing to die for, you really don't have something to live for. So this year becomes a lot deeper in today's day and age and our new perception. Now, it sounds like I'm being bitter about this new perception, but I do want to share with you that in my personal beliefs, this new perception that took place since the 60s of this make love, not war, I believe has a huge connection with the fact that Mashiach's coming is imminent. Because all of a sudden, we have a whole new perception of the possibility of living in total peace. Something that since mankind, since Cain and Abel um, had their little bout, we just never even fathomed that it could be possible. There's an enemy and an enemy needs to be annihilated and that's just the way it works. And even, you know, just look at the animal kingdom. Eat, don't be eaten. That's just 
That's just genetic. It's just very important. That's just survival. The concept of war specifically becomes an issue in our generation. So much so that the Rebbe of Blessed Memory began in the 80s. He began a children's program. It's a kid's group. And it's called Sivot Hashem, the Army of Hashem. And the entire program works with an army-like mentality. You work up the ranks. You make it all the way up to a general. There's a mission of the day. There's the commander-in-chief. There's the enemy, which is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. And the Rebbe has a whole system there. And the Rebbe would actually talk. There would actually be what we call Tzivah Hashem rallies, where the Rebbe came out and spoke to the children. And he spoke to them very much in military tone. That the day, today's mission of the day is, and he would talk about how the Yetzirah is the enemy, and you have to make sure that the evil inclination doesn't slip up on you, and what the mission of the day is, and so forth and so on. So it was very real. And what happens is that someone asked the Rebbe, this is what I heard. I did not see the question, and I really regretfully must tell you I never heard the answer. But someone asked the Rebbe a question. Very simple. Why is the Rebbe training children with war? Why isn't there a better way to talk to children? Why does it have to be Tzivot Hashem, an army of Hashem, with an enemy? Why can't we teach the children, you know, create a whole new group of uh, flower children? Why do we need to have war? I don't know what the Rebbe answered. If I would know what the Rebbe answered, this class would be a lot easier for me. But the question was a question. So the question, what we're asking today is, why war? I'm going to share with you the line that really is the heart and soul of today's class. It was said by a chassid who came from Russia to America. And he said as follows. What he notices about Americans is that everyone knows how to make kiddush, but not everyone knows how to make havdalah. Now obviously he was playing with the words. Kiddush means to sanctify. Friday night we sanctify the Shabbat Kodesh. Right? Mekadesh HaShabbat. What happens Saturday night after the three stars come out? What do we do? We make Havdalah. What does Havdalah mean? The word Havdalah means a separation. Hamavdil ben Kodesh lechol. There's holy and there's non-holy. So the concept of separation means to say that the line stops here. There's an outside and there's an inside. But he meant it not just in the sake of Shabbat, he, made, he meant it in the sense of that in America, everyone's willing to have a lovey-dovey, we love everyone, everyone's good, everyone's holy, we have to have peace with everyone, never a war. And we're missing, in America, we're missing the concept that sometimes we have to make havdalah, not kiddush. Sometimes you have to draw a line. If you want to talk in the language of a therapist, personal boundaries. There are those inside and those outside. We need to know that there's friend and foe. Not just not friend, but actual foe. There are relationships that need to be terminated. In the language of recovery, sometimes we need to change people, places, things. It isn't just everyone's kiddush. We're going to save the whole world. Everyone deserves to be loved and everyone deserves to be embraced and everyone deserves to... No. 
there's time to make Havdalah. And that's something that our generation doesn't grasp well. And that's why I would suggest to you that majority of American jury who heard last week's Torah portion, that means this past Shabbat yesterday, had a stomach that was turning. In the shul here, we had the conversation. People are bothered. Last week's Torah portion is very bothersome. We'd love to say that the Torah is only peace, and that's what separates the Torah from the Quran, the peaceful religion, from the militant religion. And then all of a sudden, there's laws of war. Now granted, the laws of war talks about how you mainly have to be even at times of war. Even prisoners of war need to be treated with respect. And this was way before the Geneva Convention. Huh? But the point is that there's a very strong line that there's a time for war. So much so that the Torah actually prohibits us at times to make peace. So this concept is what we need to discuss. Why? Why can't we accept that there can be only peace? Why do we need to embrace the concept of friend and foe? Why do we need to embrace the concept of havdalah? Why do we need to go ahead and accept that there's people who are against us, who we need to be against in return? This is the question of today's shiur. So again, I'm not even entertaining the question whether we have to have war. I'm taking that as a given. And then there's why. I'm going to discuss this on different levels. Yesterday by Shabbat, I used this as a part of this as a sermon. But I want to take it to the next level. So first, let me just catch up with this concept of war. Ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, there has been created evil. Klippa, Sitra Achra, Tum'ah, whatever name you want to call it, depending what, it, what part of Torah you're talking about. Kabbalah, Siddhis, Torah, Rechumish, whatever it is. But there is what we call impure and there's what we call pure. There's what we call face-to-face -face relationship, which is holy, and there's back-to-back -back relationship with God, which is unholy. And that's why we have clearly defined boundaries of kosher animals and non-kosher animals. One is a manifestation of the neutral, and one is a manifestation of the impure. The klipot. Now, being that that exists, there has to be war. There has to be war where we realize that if I love God, then I have the opposite feelings for those who stand against God. Now granted, we're going to soon talk about this. Standing against God is a very big word. Way too many people died under that slogan. So I'm not talking about now jihad or anything like that. I'm just talking about within the Torah itself. I'm not even talking about the human race. I'm talking about that there's something called klipa. It manifested itself the first time in the serpent who came to eat. And since then, it doesn't manifest itself in a serpent, but to quote the Medrash, there is no good without evil, there is no evil without good. 
and dust becomes a total combustion. It's normal black and white, it's gray. That means within everything, there's the good and the bad. And with everything, we need to go through this. It's part of it. For example, the word lechem means what? Bread. In the Kabbalistic teachings, the word lechem because a time of eating is a time of war. Why is it a war? Very simple. Because every time you're eating, there's a tug of war. Will you be brought down to the animal kingdom from which you are eating? Or will you elevate the animal kingdom into human service of who you are? And it boils down to very simple. What am I focusing on when I eat? Am I focusing on the taste buds? Am I allowing myself to salivate over whether it's medium rare or good or what? And this restaurant is phenomenal and this steak and it's made just perfect and it's thick enough and it's this enough. Well, if I'm doing that, then I as a human being have been drawn down into the animal kingdom because that's where my mind is. And to quote the Baal Shem Tov, where your mind is is where you are. However, if I'm focusing the other way around, if I'm focusing that the purpose for eating is to be able to make a bracha, to elevate the godly sparks, and what am I going to do with this energy? I'm going to use it to serve God. I made a bracha beforehand. going to make a bracha afterwards. At the table, I'll make sure to say words of Torah. I make sure always to have guests there, those who are less fortunate than me, either physically or spiritually. Then all of a sudden, that meal is no more part of the animal kingdom. It has become part and parcel of the human being's service to God. So when we talk about eating, lechem, this synonymous with milchama, war, it's because time of eating is a time of war. There's a choice to be made. And I'm not even talking about now with non-kosher food, the war of eating kosher or not eating kosher. That's not even part of the Kabbalistic equation of war. We're talking about when you're eating kosher. When there's a choice to be brought up or brought down. If it's non-kosher, there's no choice. So the concept of having war is the reality of life. Ever since Adam and Eve made a whole cholent between good and evil. That's when it happened. Now let me ask you, parenthetically speaking, what happened before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit? There was no such thing as klipa. The answer is there was such a thing as klipa. But klipa served a purpose. The word klipa, which is used as evil, really means appeal, a husk. And Kabbalah tells us that before Adam and Eve ate from the tree, the only purpose of klipa was for the same reason that fruits have peels, to protect it from insects. So the klipa was subservient to the fruit as the vessel is subservient to the light. However, once we made a whole big thing out of the klipa, not as subservient, but all of a sudden it's not transparent to the light. It's not subservient. It's telling you that I'm what it's all about. Focus on me. All of a sudden you have the manifestation of ego, which is the manifestation of evil. So ever since they misconstrued and totally misplaced the klipa, we now have good and evil, and thus we have war. And thus, as much as the 60s would say, make love to everything, embrace, it can't be so.
As a matter of fact, the verse says that the day that you will eat from the tree of knowledge, you will die. And we know that he didn't die that day. But on that day, it was decreed upon mankind that man must die. And the reason is very simple. Because once you've internalized klipa, if you live forever, what's going to live with you forever? Evil. And that's why until Mashiach comes, there has to be the verse. And to the earth you shall return. Because part of you is klipa, and klipa cannot be eternal. Thus we now understand that the true definition of war is not about what's going on in the Middle East yet. It's what's going on within you and I. Because that is where the first seed of war took place. From there later it manifests itself. Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. It gets worse. But the concept, the original concept of war took place within man. Which will answer to you a very simple question which a lot of people don't bother asking. Who told Eve to eat from the fruit of knowledge? The Nachash, right? The snake. Have you ever had a snake tap you on the shoulder and tell you to go into Donna, Burger King, McDonald's? When you hear a voice telling you, come on, the kosher sandwich is half the size and four times the price. Did you see the billboard? At Burger King, for 89 cents, you eat a breakfast, lunch, and supper all in one sandwich. The snake doesn't tell you that, so where does the voice come from? <laughs> the voice comes from within. What changed? What changed was that Adam didn't have evil. Eve didn't have evil. It was outside of them until they sinned, and then it became inside of them. So once upon a time, if there was any war to be had, it would have been only external. Today, there is a war to be had, and it's internal. So there has to be a war. The why war is very simple. Because if there's evil, there has to be a war. And that's why we're told that even in the days of King Solomon, which was the closest that we could ever get to true times of peace, it still wasn't complete. When Kabbalah says that the times of King Solomon was the full moon, it immediately emphasizes that this is not the true full moon which will be in the times of Mashiach. And as we know, from King Solomon came out the Nebuchadnezzar, the one who destroyed the temple. The fact that there is an exile after proves that the peace was never whole and absolute before. A true and whole absolute cannot be followed by war. The definition of true and absolute peace means that the possibility of war has been removed. So even in times of King Solomon, beneath it all lied potential of war. And it did actualize itself. We're now in North Miami, not in Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh. So war does exist simply because there's two sides. That just explains why there has to be war. Now I'd like to introduce to you a very new concept created by yours truly. Anger management I didn't create, but I'd like to create something else called compassion management. Everyone's worried about anger management. I will tell you that there's a huge concern about compassion management. Most people get in trouble and in wrong relationships 
and in wrong circles and end up in trouble, not because of anger management, but because of lack of compassion management. To go back to the chassid, we all make kiddish all the time, even when the person in front of us deserves havdalah. tell you a little joke. There was this guy, he went to the horse tracks and he wants to check out the horses. He wants to sneak in to see what's going on. He wants to know which horse to bet on. And he sneaks into the, where the horses are. And lo and behold, he sees a rabbi. There's a rabbi standing by one stable and he's shuckling with a book. He says, this got to be the horse that's going to win. The rabbi's praying. So he put his money on that horse. Sure enough, the horse won. Machaya. Before the next race, he sneaks back in. Now he sees the rabbi, same rabbi, standing by a different horse, shuckling with his tail. He's saying, oh my God, he bets on that horse. The horse wins. Now he says, I'm going for it. I mean, this rabbi has proven himself. I'm betting the bank. He goes back in. He sees the rabbi standing now by a different stable, and he's shuckling away over there. He puts all his money on the horse. And the horse comes in dead last. He goes looking for the rabbi. He asks the rabbi, I, I don't get it. I saw you praying by the first horse. I won money. I saw you praying by the second horse. I saw you work. You, I won money. By the third horse, I put everything I got on it. It came in dead last. And the rabbi looked at him and says, is it my fault that you don't know the difference between a prayer and a kaddish? Not everything is a prayer. Not everything is kiddush. There are some times when we hear that the relationship is one of kaddish, one of havdalah. And it's important to remember that. It's important to understand that if there was no purpose for anger, if there was no purpose for givura, God wouldn't have created it. If the correct tool for everything would be compassion, there would be only one tool in our human toolbox, and it would be called compassion. But it is not so. I want to talk to you a little bit about the fourth step in, uh, in addiction recovery. What is the fourth step in addiction recovery? It is the step of making an inventory. It's making an inventory of personal faults. I want to talk about this for a moment because the month of Elul is everyone's month for the fourth step. What is the month of Elul? The month of Elul is to take a real personal inventory, to know your good points and to know your not good points, to know which points in you need to be enhanced and which points in you need to be eliminated. There are some traits which don't belong there. So when you sit down and you do the fourth step inventory, you can end up extremely depressed. You find out that you really are a total mess. You're sitting down and you're being honest. No one's reading this. This is just you. The fifth step is where you read it to someone. But right now in the fourth step, <laughs> don't worry about that. In the fourth step, all you got to do is clean the mirror, sit down, and do a personal inventory. When you do a personal inventory, I will tell you, you become very, very depressed. It's not a pretty sight. Especially that we've been living all our years in our life in total self-denial. 
and we, we believed when we heard that we were the greatest. And anyone that told us that we were anything less than greatest was stama, good for nothing, jealous. And all of a sudden now you have to sit down with a pen and paper and work it out. And it's very depressive. But then you come across some of the teachings and writings. You ever pick up a book called 12 and 12 by uh, Bill W., the 12 steps and the 12 um, traditions. And you start reading what step four really is. And here's what you learn. Step four is not about finding bad things about yourself. Step four is to understand that the things that today are our faults are actually instinctive gifts that were given to us by God that have gone wild. Actually, the fault you hate most about yourself is probably the most beautiful gift that you've received. Only that, it's gotten out of control. Take, for example, passion. Is passion a curse? Well, I will tell you. For those of us who have lost control over passion, who have allowed passion to totally erase any personal boundary that we have, passion has become a curse. And we wish we would be able to control ourselves. But you tell me, is passion a curse? Should you really be so upset at God that he gave you such an overwhelming dosage of passion that you're capable of being passionate about the simplest things, about relationships, about other people? Passion isn't the problem. The fact that I have no borders to my passion, that's a problem. Thus, in a personal inventory, but you're actually going to find out that the things that we hate about ourselves most is actually the most beautiful parts of ourselves. Only if we could bring it under control. Now, in, in the recovery program, under control is, is a no-no. It's all about surrender. And I'm not here to discuss that right now. But what I'm trying to say is that when you look at who you are and you think to myself, oh my God, I'm a monster on two feet. Reread the paper. Reread the paper and find out if your character defects are ugly or they're beautiful in ugly expression. I'm going to say that again. Give a good look at your paper of your character defects and give a good look to see are these ugly things about me or are they beautiful things which just came completely out of whack. Oh, yeah. Okay? When you find that out, you're going to find out now what we need to do. And here I'm going to answer a little bit of why war. There are two concepts in the teachings of Hasidus of how to deal with character defects. One is called, it's Aramaic, not Hebrew, one is called iskafya, and one is called ishapcha. Okay? The word iskafya means to subjugate. It means to bend over, to control. What it means in simple English, you want, you want, you really, really want, plots. That's what it really means. Because you just can't have it. It's the exact opposite of the addicts 
way of thinking. I want what I want, and I want it now. And that's it. Iskafya is the exact opposite. Iskafya tells you what you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to, and what you're allowed to, you don't have to. That's Iskafya. Iskafya is outright war. You're here to completely bring down the expression of your instincts that have gone wrong. Ishapcha is transformation. Ishapcha is to take that beautiful trait, that beautiful gift that has become ugly and transform it back into being beautiful. It's where passion has two reins that control it. I'm not looking to stop my passion. I'm looking to direct my passion. What I do get passionate about, what I don't get passionate about, and how much I get passionate over the things that I do get passionate. Very often I tell people, I counsel, that too many of us treat our heart as a one-bedroom efficiency apartment. Everyone is either all the way in or either all the way out. In a healthy heart, there's many rooms. And everyone needs to have their designation until where they can come. There are acquaintances, there are friends, there are close to them friends, there are relatives. Each one has a different. One has to stand in the foyer, one's allowed into the living room. And then there's a special someone who's allowed into your entire heart. That means that my compassion has been controlled. I can't fall in love with everything and everyone. At least not the type of love that's reserved for the special. The house that has no walls is no house. A passion that's equally for everyone is a house without walls. So the transformation here is that I'm not killing the passion. I'm not stopping the passion. I'm directing the passion. I'm learning what's right to be compassionate about, what's right to be passionate about, and what's not right. Sermon, the Shabbat after I heard it. I was sitting in Kirishita, of blessed memory, on 123rd Street. It was right after they caught uh, Saddam, Saddam Hussein, and there's grandparents that took out their two grandchildren. I don't know them. But I'm sitting and listening to this. They're sitting down and they're discussing. And the grandchildren are the comments they were making. And I think what tipped the scale was when one of them said, wow, I really feel sorry for Saddam Hussein. And I was just blown away. This is compassion that does not have compassion management. This is Kiddush without Havdalah. And it all comes from the thought that we can jump to step two called transformation before we go through step one, which is self-control. So I want to share with you a very important rule in the teachings of Hasidus. If you can't first control it and stop it, you can't transform it. It's impossible. All of us want to get to the level of transformation. 
But none of us want to have to deal with the self-control part, known again in addiction recovery as white-knuckling it. You know what white-knuckling it is? You hold your hands like this tight. You see my knuckles are getting white? That's what white-knuckling is. I want it, I want it, I want it, I'm going crazy. I'm going to close my hands, I'm going to clench my fist because I am not going for it. So understand that all of us want recovery, but none of us want to have to really deal with the white knuckling. The white knuckling is the recovery term for escafia. Thus understand that we need to have war before we can make peace. We're going to have to go to war with our instincts, our character traits, our gifts that went cuckoo on us. The ones that drive us insane. They're so beautiful about us, but because we've allowed them to go so awry, they are actually our worst enemies today. And thus, we need to first go to war in the white knuckling sense before we can turn to transformation. So while world peace, and when I say world peace, I don't mean the great big world, I mean the world that's right here between my ears down to my toes. That world peace, which we each yearn for, because when we're with inner peace, we are at our greatest achievement levels. However, there is no inner peace if you're not willing to go to war with yourself. Someone gave me a gift. I'll tell you who, my brother. And we used to go horseback riding together. When we went horseback riding, so of course they started teaching us. So we had someone that was training us. That little period of time of horseback riding training taught me a lot of what Tanya is talking about. Because the animalistic soul is the horse and the godly soul is the rider. And the relationship that could exist between the rider and the horse is phenomenal. However, you need to first have a lot of war with your horse. Starting from the first time that you just put the blanket that goes under the saddle on the horse. Because before you break the horse's spirit, you cannot have a relationship with the horse. The horse in its wild stallion nature and spirit, and you, the rider, will not be getting along. There's got to come the point where you're going to break the spirit of the horse. What we're calling now white knuckling is scafia. That's what we're talking about. And if you're not willing to go to war, you can keep on dreaming of beautiful horseback riding, but it will not happen. Because transformation without first having the war the escafia will not take place. And thus the world as we know it, until we're willing to give up on this naive, beautiful fairy tale of we can have transformation, we can learn to communicate before we set some very strong personal boundaries, it's not going to work. We've got to go to war. Starting with ourselves. We've got to go to war. We've got to break the spirit, the wild spirit of the animal. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be a question which they say in Hebrew, mi barosh. There's going to have to be mi barosh. Who is in charge here? 
when I was going horseback riding, they told me, I know you don't care where you go. And if the horse is moving, you're already excited. But it's very important that if you show the horse to go right and the horse is going left, you've got to make the horse go right. Even though you didn't care, you didn't want to go right, you just wanted to move. You picked right, the horse went left, news all signed left. They told me, don't do that. Don't do that because you're destroying the relationship that must exist between the beautiful power of horseback rider and rider. Horseback rider and horse. The mi barosh is very important because when you make decisions, you need to know mi barosh. Who's in charge here? The mind or the heart? Who's in charge here? The control of self or let's just have excitement? What's the difference? Passion. It's passion. Enjoy it. We're not sinning, at least not yet. It's passion. That war has got to be had. Because we are made up of two souls. The godly soul and the animalistic soul. The horse and the rider. The mind and the heart. That's why we have to have war. And that's why it's so important to embrace this war. Because it isn't a war of hatred. It isn't a war of annihilation. It's a war which is the roadmap to peace. Once we can understand that Iskafia, white knuckling, this war is the path to peace, then we can embrace it. And then realize that the outcome will be that if we have this war appropriately, not with ego, then the next step is transformation. Now you're experiencing beautiful galloping of true healthy horseback riding. Now we're watching the godly soul saddled onto the animalistic soul living the journey and power of life. So as much as we're all so worried, we don't want to teach our kids anything that's not lovey, dovey, embracing, compassion. It's not so. It's not so. We will lie to, and the lie goes on, and we're suffering, and we're stuck with a bunch of wannabes, successful people. And life isn't about being a wannabe. It's about being. And if you're not ready to have the war of personal boundaries, the war of mi barosh, the war that has to tell yourself, I know you want it, you can't have it, period. Why can't you have it for whatever the reason is? Then after that, we transform. Once you transform and transmute, now you're talking about, imagine, imagine if what causes so much pain would be under control and would cause you so much success. You have no idea how many people I meet eye to eye and what's most special about them is the one part of them that they want to annihilate because it's totally, totally disturbed their life. It's disturbed their life because it's gone cuckoo and they're not willing to white knuckle before they're willing to put it in its proper place. I have one last piece to this. I asked why war? I gave you an explanation, why war, because Adam and Eve, evil and good, one big combustion. 
and you have to go through his kafya before you go through his hapcha. But let me ask the question again. Why war? Couldn't the master artist of it all created life without the need for war? Couldn't he? There are better ways to be able to connect and utilize my gifts appropriately without war. Why did he have to create war? So I'm going to take you to a pasuk and what the sages say about it. And God saw all that he created and it was very good. And our sages say something very magnificent. Good refers to the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination. Very good refers to the Yetzir Hara. How mind-boggling. Tov, Yetzir Tov. Me'od, Yetzir Hara. What are they saying? What are they saying? What they're saying is that if we only have Tov and we never went to war with the Yetzir Tov, the Yetzir Hara, we will only be stuck in a finite, logical life of goodness. What's beautiful about the animalistic soul and evil is that it's illogical. If you ever want to experience the intensity of life, it's not going to be brought to you through the Yetzir Tov. Because your Yetzir Tov is the radiator of your car. It's the cooling system. It automatically sets you up with logistics. There's a right and there's a wrong. There's an appropriate amount of right. Self-sacrifice in most cases are prohibited by the Torah. The full gallop of a horse is something that the human on his own could never appreciate. So tov zayetza tov. Me'od, very good, passionately good, insanely good, essentially good, beyond the realm of right and wrong. That is the gift of the animalistic soul. Therefore, if we would not have the war and we would not have to combat the side of us which really has gone cuckoo on us, we would never know what it means to be insanely passionate and alive in the service of God. We would never know the side of us which is so illogical, so amazing, Most of us in this room would not ever be able to enjoy being alive if everything in our life was proper. Proper is a good thing, but it's just not made for me. I need to be able to be improperly insane over the things I love. I don't want to just wake up Come to shul, daven, look at the clock, I did it, okay. How much charity do I give? I'm sorry, I know you need more, but the law says that this is what I have to give. I'm actually not allowed to give more than this. It would drive me, personally, nuts. To be able to feel, to really feel the intensity of being in love, in love with God, in love with Israel, in love with the Torah, in love with a fellow Jew, 
To be able to do something so crazy as you happen to just get some money and give it all away to a friend who's really hurting. Which probably halakhically is frowned upon. But to be able to experience that without the Yetzirah, we would never be able to experience that. I'd be stuck in properness. And I am not English. No, I'm kidding. It's just not who I am. Says the Pasuk, Tov, I see the proper goodness. And that's the gift of the Yetzir Tov. But then I see Tov Ma'od, very good, insanely good. That is the gift of the Yetzir But that Yetzir is torture. And it has us contemplating that we'd rather not be alive because it drives us crazy until we first go to war with white knuckling, slowly transforming and experiencing an insanely good life. That's it for today, guys.